epistle lesson this morning is from James chapter 3. We will be reading verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we come to your word this morning, it's a deep challenge. Our words are many and our sins are many as well. And certainly your word is true that our tongue is a world of unrighteousness. Forgive us for all our faults and wrongs and lead us in a better way. By your spirit, open our lips that our mouths will proclaim your praise. We ask in Christ's name, amen. We are skipping the Eighth Commandment for this week. We'll return to it next week if you are a tidy and good order person. We will be back. You can't avoid stealing. But in his novel, Animal Farm, George Orwell highlights the emptiness of a society that's built on political spin and deceit. The novel tells the story, it's a short novel, of Manor Farm, and it is a farm under the management of Mr. Jones. Conditions are harsh on the farm. And so one prize-winning boar, his name was Old Major, he begins leading a revolution. He teaches that there were better days ahead where there would be equality and fraternity, that things would be better on the farm. Three days after he begins his teaching, he dies. And so it's left to the pigs. Three pigs, their names being Snowball, Napoleon, and Squealer, take up the mantle of the revolution. They throw Mr. Jones and his cronies off the farm. They rename it Animal Farm, and there was to be equality, fraternity, liberality. It was to be a place that was right, a utopia of sorts. Unfortunately, as the way things go, not long after removing Mr. Jones, the pigs become quite entitled. They began to take for themselves more food. They began to usurp their own rights. They didn't have the interest of the other animals on the farm in mind. 
Squealer was put in charge of communications. He began a propaganda campaign. Almost every one of the seven principles that the pigs had set out under the direction of Old Major to accomplish were compromised. They changed everything. And the pigs used deceit through the mouth of Squealer to enforce their own injustice. And it's interesting because what Orwell explores is the connection between deceit, injustice, and inequality, and greed. And here, even though I don't think he intended to do so, Orwell was profoundly in the rhythm of the Bible. Because what we find in the second half of the Ten Commandments is an obsession with the neighbor, with a concern for the neighbor's good, for his reputation, for his honor, for his property. And sitting in the middle of that concern for neighbor is this command about not bearing false witness against him, not being deceitful. In other words, to protect the neighbor involves honest speech that deceit or lying fuels that injustice and that greed in a society gone very wrong. And so while this command, it does expose us, it is a mirror in which we can look at ourselves and we must confess our faults. It is not only a mirror, it is also a map that God is giving us a guide to look ahead as to what He is creating and the path that He wants us to walk in, what it looks like for us to be those who are redeemed by Him. Remember the way that the Ten Commandments works. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the statement of God's grace. Therefore, I'm leading you in this way, this kind of life. And so this is the way that we hear the commandment this morning, and we ask God, what is the goal of it? What is the direction He is taking us? What does it mean for us not to bear false witness? And there's four things that we're going to be developing, and you've got to have your Bibles ready once again, because we're going to be using the whole canon, bringing it all together about how the Bible develops this idea of being true and faithful witnesses. But the first of the four, what is the goal? It's to create a just community. If you have a Bible available, turn to Exodus 23. Exodus 23 is the chapter where the ninth commandment is developed. Listen to these statutes and ordinances that develop the command, that further explain it. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And then in verse 6, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the wicked." And you, shall not, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. It's fascinating how the command is developed, and it's mostly developed in a judicial context. That is the courtroom, where there were courts in ancient Israel amongst God's people that they were used. Uh, to use to enact justice in their society, 
See, it assumes a fallen world where there's sin and brokenness and there would be crimes committed. But God made provision so that there would be a just society even in the midst of a fallen world. And so the court was designed to be a place of truth-speaking where people were not unduly influenced by the many, as it says in Exodus, by what the crowd thinks, or that they weren't disposed to go with the powerful and disadvantage the weak. You see, those who uh, were on the margins of society were oftentimes taken advantage of in the courts, the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, the outsiders. Those were the ones oftentimes without legal rights. What Proverbs says about this in chapter 10 is that the poor have no fortress. They have nothing protecting them. That the wealth of the mighty, of the strong, is like a fortress for them. But that the poverty of the poor leaves them exposed. The poor are like a city without walls. And so there was this specific interest in protecting those who could be trampled on in the court. It was going to be a just society. But at the same time, the law makes clear in chapter 23 that you weren't supposed to lean it to the poor, that the interest was truth and justice. It says, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And so the clear goal of all of this is a meticulous interest in the truth and for justice to be enacted, to be careful. Augustine, in writing on the matters of justice, says this, He says, when regard for truth has been broken down or slightly weakened, all things will remain doubtful. And he's speaking directly into the circumstance of what happens when truth begins to break down, that there is corruption and that everything is now in doubt. When we have a church society that doesn't uh, speak the truth, everything begins to fall apart. No one can trust anything that's said. It creates a culture of cynicism. It creates a culture of suspicion. And words become weapons that we wield in order to win. That's all words become. And this is not what God wants our words to be. The words are not to be weapons in order to get our way. That our words are to bear witness to the truth. They are to be honest. They are to be genuine. They are to have integrity. If you turn with me to Psalm 101, we find what God's great goal is for His redeemed and forgiven community. Psalm 101 is about the coming King. Of course, this is Jesus and the kingdom and realm that He comes to establish. In verse 5, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Again in verse 7, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house, and no one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. In other words, the matters of deceit and lying and bearing false witness, that those will not endure in the world that is remade. They are a pollutant. They'll be... Removed. They'll be scrubbed clean because it's not part of the world that God intended, that it's sinful and it's broken, and that God will bring judgment on it in order to purify and cleanse His world and make it right. And friends, when we participate in that kind of falsity, we're going against the grain of what God is doing because the church today, this community, 
God is wanting it to be a just one. And it's to be a foretaste. It's to be a sample of everything that lies ahead when our Lord Jesus returns to make everything right. And so we strive as much as possible to be a just community where there's honest speech amongst ourselves and especially in our courts that we exercise as a community. So this is our first goal. Now the second goal of bearing true witness is that we are to protect our neighbor's honor. It is interesting reading the Psalms. You get a flavor for someone who is being accused of many things. David, the rising king of Israel, was accused of many things while Israel was under the reign of Saul. And Psalm 35 is one of those pictures, if you'll turn there. You see the anguish that false accusation brings into the life of the one who receives it. It's an intense prayer. And in verse 11, he says, Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. And then in verse 26, Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, God, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. And you can feel the intensity of false witnesses arising and celebrating in his downfall. Someone intentionally using to, to deceit in order to take him down in public. And the design of this command is to prevent that kind of situation. That words would not be used to dishonor our neighbor, but rather that we would protect our neighbor's reputation, we would protect his property, that we would protect who he is, giving him the benefit of the doubt in our speech, especially short of having the truth. And so we don't want to deprive our neighbor of what is rightfully his. The book of Proverbs says it in a very provocative way if you turn to chapter 25. One over from the book of Psalms. In verse 18, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club, or a sword, or a sharp arrow. Do you see what they're saying? What is being said is that to speak a lie is to do violence to your neighbor. In fact, it's the first step. It's the first step of taking something from him that doesn't belong to you. And it is an act of violence. That yes, slander and malice that pours out of our lips that it is violent. And yes, it can seem to be so sweet and mild when we pass along things that we shouldn't say. But the Bible says is that when we bear false witness in that way, we are going against our neighbor, we are going against God, that we're acting violently and roughly. We are being malicious witnesses. So the biggest question for us is, what does it require though? What is required of us in order not to be malicious witnesses against one another? 
And I want you to turn to Ephesians 4. I warned you that you were going to be all over the place. I'm sorry. Because here we find the answer of what it takes for us to be so interested in our neighbor's reputation that we seek to preserve it. Because the fundamental biblical ethic is that we would seek the interest of our neighbor ahead of our own. And that when it comes to being a witness or it comes to speaking about our neighbor, that we be intimately concerned with their honor. And so Paul, in chapter 4, verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And that is the provocative statement. That when you're members of a church community, you don't just belong to the same volunteer organization. That isn't what Paul says. You don't just happen to belong to the same group or company. But rather, when we are members of a church, we are members one of another. Related as a hand is to an arm. We are part of each other. And so to diminish another person in that community is actually to diminish yourself. And this is where a radical reorientation has to take place in us. That we must know what it is to be loved and served by God in Jesus. For someone to put the interest of ourselves ahead of their own, which is what Jesus does on the cross. And He doesn't consider His own interest. He lays them aside. And we then pick up that ethic and apply it to all of life, and especially in our words. That we are members of one another. We want to protect and we want to honor. We want to use our words rightly. This doesn't mean that we can't speak candidly. But it does mean that we don't run ahead of the facts. And we don't just suppose we know what's true. We don't work without full information. Because false information, it can undo someone. It can destroy them. That it's difficult to counter. There's only something to lose in countering it for the person falsely accused. And that is not the society God wants us to be. Not that kind of place. The third goal of the commandment is to encourage honest speech. The commandment is mostly located in the context of the courtroom. But it is applied across the Bible also just to our general speech, speaking honestly. If you'll turn to Proverbs chapter 6, we have here in Proverbs a list of six things that God detests or that He hates. Verse 16 in chapter 6. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. It's interesting here, in this short pithy saying, Six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. Four of the seven are concerned with our words. A lying tongue, 
a heart that devises wicked plans, a false witness who breathes out lies, and someone sowing discord. That these are things that we have to be focused on in our individual piety, in our life before God. That we have to consider whether we bear good witness and what fruit is God producing inside of us. We read from James chapter 3, which is one of the most severe passages in all of the Bible, that says that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness, that we can set the world on fire with it, that the tongue is like the rudder that steers and guides a ship, how small it is, and yet it controls the whole thing. And so it's important for us to take stock, to ask God, how are my words being used? Am I using them in appropriate, in good ways? Are they bearing the fruit that God wants? Or do they lean towards shading the truth? Do they lean towards not respecting my neighbor? Do they lean towards lying? And it's important to ask ourselves a few very practical questions. And the most practical question I could ask myself this week in studying this is what motivates me to lie? What are the moments when I am most prone not to bear a true witness? And I think there are five types of situations that we get ourselves into where it's really tempting to lie. And the first is that we get scared. We get scared that we're going to lose our reputation. Someone confronts us with something, something is brought to our attention, and we want to cover ourselves up. It's very tempting at that point to blame someone else, to obfuscate the circumstances, to just not have the truth come out because we want to save face. And friends, the thing is, is that we don't have to save face. That you've blown it is apparent. To be in the church is to recognize that you've blown it, okay? That you're not qualified to be here. In fact, the only qualification is your disqualification, all right? That's what it takes to come in the doors, to recognize that we need God's grace and forgiveness. But sometimes we get so caught up in our own reputation that we'll even begin to lie in order to protect ourselves, not recognizing that it's much easier just to acknowledge and own our wrongs, not to obfuscate, to say that, yes, I did that, and I'm wrong and I'm sorry, to find God's grace and forgiveness. Now, a second very practical situation which we're tempted to lie is that we're threatened because we feel like what we've done could challenge our position and everything we've achieved. And so at that point, it can be very tempting to lie, to not bear a true witness because we care more about what we've achieved and everything that that enables in our lives than we do about the truth. And this is where the deep connections between the latter commandments and the first commandments come into play. And we can justify lying in order to protect our livelihood or our positions in life because we love those things more than we love God. And you only break one of these latter nine commandments when you've broken the first one. And so when we have loved something more than God, we will protect it and we will be threatened, and we will lie on its behalf. A third very practical situation in which we are prone to lie is when we're angry, when we want revenge. 
it is sometimes fun for us to slide in a word that is not true in order to decimate the character of someone else. It feels satisfying when they have wronged us. And this is the way we can get back. As we discussed a minute ago, it's like a war club or a sword. You're doing violence. A fourth way that this oftentimes works out for situations is that we're jealous. We want something that's not ours. And you can think of the great story of Jezebel in 1 Kings 21, where Ahab wanted a field that didn't belong to him, and false witnesses were concocted in order that field could be taken from him. And so the man was killed. He wanted something that he didn't have, that he wanted to have inside of his possession. He was jealous of it. And this is why the ninth commandment is so closely tied to the tenth commandment about coveting. Because the two oftentimes work together. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. What are we coveting the most? What is it that we are jealous of? And how could then our desire to pursue that, to obtain it, how could that provoke lying within us? And then a final way that bearing false witness plays itself out, and perhaps most frequently, is when we're ill-informed. When we take the word of another as simply true, and we then begin to circulate and tell others that word and spread it, and we haven't gone to the person who is the victim of that word that is circulating, we haven't gone and asked them their account, and we haven't done business as the Bible encourages us in Matthew 18, we didn't first go to our brother, rather we go to the court of public appeal. And it can come across an innocent thing like prayer request. We need to pray for them. Mm -hmm. That's how it happens. Gossip is normally not someone who sets out in order to destroy someone else, and slander isn't either. Sometimes they can be, but sometimes it's just passing along information that's simply not true, and you haven't gone through the right steps. And so with all these things, with the Bible encouraging honest speech. And as Proverbs 6 presses us, that God hates this stuff. He hates it. And yet we can sit light with it, and we can toy about, and we can keep it around and not think it's that serious. But God wants to purge it from our midst. And so He encourages honest speech. Now the final goal of the commandment here What is it that God is trying to achieve? Is He is ultimately exposing our hearts. Proverbs say that where words are many, sins multiply. And it's so true. That when we reflect on our many words that we speak, we know the great temptation it is not to use our words well. But where does this exactly rise from? Where does it come from? Jesus addresses this in Mark chapter 7. Listen to what he says. He says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, 
come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus is here reorienting his opponents, saying that no, it's not what comes in from the outside that defiles you, that the defilement happens because of what is already interior to you, who you are as a broken and fallen person. And that that entire second table of the law, to love your neighbor as yourself, that all of the breaking of those commands comes from within. And so as we hear these words about not bearing false witness and the severity with which God hates lying and the ways that we do it, the ways that we don't use our words well, we're exposed. Who can stand in front of this? Who can read James 3 honestly and say, yep, done it. Haven't broken any of that. Our tongue is like fire, and it's deeply convicting. It allows us, it's one of those very few places in life that allows us to feel the weight of our sin. And it's there in that exposed condition that God wants us to sit. Because it's there that we, re we realize that it was the weight of lies that were piled up on one individual who had no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53 is the beautiful picture of the one who didn't malign his enemies, who didn't slander, who had no deceit in his mouth, and yet he went down because of lies, because of deceit, because of false witnesses rising up against him. And it is as if the collective weight of lies of the whole world are piled up there in the crucifixion of Jesus. And He goes down for the filth of our lips. He goes down into the death, absorbing the judgment that we deserve, that is rightfully ours for the world of fire that is created by our tongues. Jesus is destroyed for it. But then in rising again to new life, He offers us hope. That the Spirit of God who raised Him from the dead now lives inside of us. And that God would remove and forgive our sins. That when we see them in the mirror, we know that we have an advocate. And that His righteousness is now ours. That we stand in front of God in Him. That's the great news of the Gospel. And that the Spirit is now leading us in a better way. David, after his own failures, in Psalm 51, he confesses them. And then he says perhaps one of the shortest, most beautiful prayers in all the Bible to me. He says, Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. And friends, that's the direction that the Spirit is now taking us. That our lips would be redeemed. That they would sing the praises of God. That they would speak truthfully and honestly. That there would not be deceit in us. That the life of Christ is now bearing itself out in us, His people. That we do create a just community. That we honor our neighbor and we seek to respect his reputation. That we encourage honest speech across all of life because we've got nothing to hide. 
this is where God is taking us as a people. It requires deep searching. Tremendous moments of embarrassing revelations when we see how destructive our words can be. And yet, in those tremendously embarrassing moments, there's a deep well of grace. That Jesus went down under the weight of our lies in order to remove them, to heal us and make us whole. And so let's continue to trust Him to do that. And let's join with David and say, Lord, open our lips. And then our mouths, our lips, will offer Him praise. Let's pray. Father, we do look to You for help. We recognize that our tongue, though a small member of our bodies, directs the whole course of our lives, and it can be used in incredibly destructive ways. Lead us and guide us into bearing true witness, into speaking the truth, that we move away from gossip and slander and lying and deceit. This creates a world that's uninhabitable, that's not good. It's not the future of your creation. And so by the Spirit of Jesus, guide our lips, instruct us, inform us. We ask in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.